You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Psalms chapter 86. This morning we're going to spend time in book three of the book of Psalms, which encompasses Psalms 73 through 89. Now the tone, if you were here earlier in our study when I broke the book of Psalms down in these four books, the tone now darkens, in a sense, in this particular book, these sets of psalms. The opening psalm, 73, starkly questions the justice of God before uh, seeing light in his presence. And book two ended, we ended last Shabbat, with the high point of royal aspiration. But this book concludes with these expectations badly threatened. Sharp rays of hope occasionally pierce the darkness in this group of psalms. And the two psalms we're going to look at today that I chose to look at center on a theme that I felt was important for us in this new season that we are embarking on. Psalm 86 gives us a helpful lesson on prayer. It is the only psalm in book three of the psalms labeled as written by David. It is the earnest, heartfelt cry of a man of Adonai in a desperate situation laying hold of God whom he knew very well. And so the psalm is peppered with actually 15 requests, some of them repetitive, fired at God with a strong sense of urgency. Enoch understands that. He wants to preach, doesn't he? Give him a mic, he might have a word for us. And though there are many lessons in prayer in this particular psalm, the main lesson, I think, my friends, in the psalm is very simple, and it is this. Our great needs should drive us to pray to our great God, who alone can deliver us. Pretty simple. I want to explore four questions. Well, let's read the psalm. A psalm of David. Turn your ear, Adonai, and answer me. For I am weak and needy, Psalm 86. Watch over my soul, for I am godly. You are my God. Save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, my Lord, for to you I cry all day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, my Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, my Lord, are tov, are good. And ready to forgive and full of mercy to all who call upon you. Give ear, Adonai, to my prayer. Listen to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you will answer me. There is none like you among the gods. My Lord, there are no deeds like yours. All nations you have made will come and bow down before you, my Lord. And they will glorify your name, for you are great And do wonders. You alone are God. Teach me your way, Adonai, that I might walk 
in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to fear your name. I praise you, O Lord my God, with my whole live, my whole heart, and glorify your name forever. For great is your loving kindness toward me. You have delivered my soul from the lowest part of Sheol. God, the proud have risen up against me, and a gang of ruthless people have sought my life and have not set you before them. But you, my Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, full of hava, love, and emmet, truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Make me a sign for good so that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. For you, Adonai, have helped me and comforted me. I want to explore four questions with you this morning from this psalm. Simple questions. Why should we pray? To whom should we pray? How should we pray? And what should we pray for? Pretty simple questions. Let's take up question number one. Why should we pray? Well, we should pray because we have great needs. Amen. The fact that David cries out for Adonai to save him, verses 2 and 16, shows that he knew he could not save himself. In verse 7, David mentions that he is, quote, in the day of trouble. Maybe that's somebody here today. In verse 14, he specifically mentions the band of arrogant, violent men that were seeking his life. David was deeply aware, wasn't he, of his great need, which drove him to earnest prayer. But the truth is, my friends, in our lives, pride blinds us to how needy we really are. So that we rely on ourselves, we rely on other people, we rely on some godless method to get us out of our troubles. And finally, when nothing else works... We say, we've done what all we can do, and the only thing left to do is pray. Isn't it all too often our last resort? Prayer is often our last resort. My friends, the main reason that people don't cry out to Adonai to save them from their sins is that they don't see their great needs as sinners before a great God. Before a holy God. They see themselves, the world does, as basically good. Now, they know they're not perfect, but they don't think of themselves as evil sinners either. But even once we are born anew and delivered, we still fall into that same trap, I think. We're all too often oblivious to the power of the enemy who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour us, Peter tells us. We overlook the strong appeal of, of, over, of indwelling sin that often lurks within us as well. And so perhaps our first prayer should be this, Lord, show me my great needs that only you can meet. Show me our need. To whom should we pray? Now we should pray to the only true great God. Great in koach, he's great in power, right? He's great in ahava, love, chesed, grace, and rachami, mercy. 
This psalm shows us that David knew Adonai to whom he was praying to. And in this prayer, David basically is pitting. He pits who God is against his enemies, and he leaves the outcome to God. Seven times in this psalm, David uses the term Adonai, Adonai, my Lord, referring to God. He made the nations. He has ordained that they will all come before him and worship before him. The Lord alone is Adonai. He is great in power. Now look at verse 8. By referring to the gods, small g, David means the idols. He means the demons that the heathen were worshiping. Rav Shaul or Paul referred to the demons saying that there are many small case gods and small case lords in heaven and on the earth. But at the time which Adonai determines, he will bring fire down from heaven to destroy even his enemies. Hasatan and all of his demons are going to be thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where they are going to be tormented, the Bible tells us, forever and ever. And even now before that time, Adonai, we are assured in scriptures that greater is he that's within us than he that's within this world. That should give us great confidence to pray. And although the forces of darkness are powerful, none of them can compare to Adonai, my Lord. Adonai. Adonai is great in love, David writes. He's great in mercy. He's great in grace. Here in verse 5, David uses it here to appeal to Adonai to answer his prayer. For you, my Lord, are good and ready to forgive and full of mercy to all who call upon you. You see, if Messianic believers, as Messianics, if we have failed God by sinning, David encourages us here. He invites us to come to the Lord for forgiveness, for grace, and for mercy. David sinned often, did he not? In major ways even. If you're following the Lord but you're struggling with overwhelming problems beyond your ability to handle, God invites you to come as you are to his throne of chesed, his throne of grace, to receive mercy and grace to help in your time of need too. By the way, there's no application to fill out to justify your need. Hello. There's no line to wait in to present your case. Just come to the gracious, loving Father with your needs. Pretty simple. If you've sinned, He's ready to forgive upon repentance. If you feel you don't deserve his blessing, grace is for the undeserving, David writes. He is abundant in mercy to all who call upon him. David just says, just call. But how should we pray? David writes and models for us, earnest, earnestly pray. Continually pray, thankfully pray, in humility and in faith. David's intensity and his earnestness here oozes out of the entire prayer in Psalm 86. If God doesn't answer, David knows he's cooked. He's doomed if God doesn't answer him. And so he cries out from his heart for Adonai to save him from his powerful enemies. The point is, David's not mumbling through a formal liturgy. 
He wasn't just going mindlessly down a prayer list, as good as that is at times. No, like a starving beggar, my friends, he was earnestly entreating God to give him food. Paul tells us, pray without ceasing. Now, Paul's not meaning that we should pray nonstop. That'd be impossible. The idea is keep coming back to God in prayer over and over again, all throughout the day. He writes in verse 12, I praise you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart. We can't give praise and thanks to Adonai from the heart unless we're submissive to his hand in our circumstances. And that we believe that he's working even through, uh, uh, through our trials together for our ultimate good. David's prayer is permeated as well with a lot of a lot of humility. He doesn't, you know, angrily demand better treatment from the Lord in light of the fact that he's God's chosen king, does he? What does he do? He refers to himself as God's servant, the son even of his maidservant. David admits, hey, Lord, I'm afflicted. I'm needy. He admits his weakness by asking God, Lord, I need your strength. How many of you have prayed that this week? David knows, verse 7, that God's going to answer him. And his affirmation that God has delivered his soul from the depths of Sheol, you know, it might be referring to some past deliverance, or it might also be a statement of faith from David about his present need for deliverance viewing the future as if it's already accomplished. David had been apparently in this trial for some time now without any hint of the Lord's deliverance. Maybe some of you have been in a trial for a long time without any hints that God is going to come through. His enemies are gloating around him, David writes. They're saying, ha, he trusted in God and God has not delivered him. So David asks for an encouraging sign that Adonai is going to answer him and shame his enemies. They weren't mocking David. They were really mocking God. My friends, our emunah, our trust rests on God's revealed character and on the many revealed instances of how he's answered prayer in the past. Our emunah, our faith, our trust rests on God's power and on his abundant love. Our emunah knows that if something is for our good and for the glory of God, he's going to do it. That's how we pray. Well, what, do we, what should we pray for? Well, David says here, pray for salvation, for joy, in trials, for a teachable, obedient, single-minded, reverent heart, and for Adonai's glory and supremacy over everything. Again, David asks here in this psalm for the Lord to save him, verses 2 and 16, which in context obviously is talking about being saved from enemies. But in Brit Chadashah terms, in the New Covenant terms, we are to pray for Adonai to save us from his judgment. David asks in verse 4, gladden the heart, the soul of your servant. Verse 11, he states, teach me your way, Adonai, that I might walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart to fear your name. My friends, in a trial, a teachable heart, that's like 101. That's essential. 
We're to ask Adonai what we should be learning about him and what should we be learning about ourselves in the difficult situation. I've been sharing with you this book I picked up about a month ago. This is real and you are completely unprepared. The Days of Awe as a Journey of Transformation. And we talked about entering into the month of Elul last Shabbat and the various parashah, hashavua, the portions of the week that are from the book of Deuteronomy during this time leading up to Yom Teruah. Parashat Shoftim, which is today, Judges, which we read during the first or second week of the month of Elul, begins with what seems like a simple prescription for the establishment of a judicial system. Quote, judges and officers you shall appoint for yourselves in all of your gates as the parashat opens. When the shofar blows on the first day of Elul and every morning thereafter, it reminds us to turn our gaze inward and to place judgment at the gates of our own consciousness, to shift our focus from the outside world to the considerable activity taking place in the window through which we view the outside world. So when we are taking inventory, one of the things we might decide is that we have to simplify our lives. Tilt. We have to do fewer things. I'm trefdaat. I'm unfocused. I'm torn. All that energy is tearing my mind, pulling my focus in a hundred directions, and leaving me not much good for anything. And worst of all, it is causing me to look at the world, listen, through a shattered window. Where is this thing called Teshuvah located, the Torah asks. Well, it isn't in heaven, so please don't say I can't do this thing because I don't know how to get to heaven. And it isn't across the sea, so please don't say I can't do this thing because I don't have a steamship ticket. Rather, it is exceedingly near to you, in your mouth and in your heart, so you can do it. Don't look off in the distance and don't look outside yourself either. The Torah is telling us, look at your own heart. Don't look out the window. Look at the window itself. What is the pain that is pressing on your heart right this moment? That's what you need to make teshuvah, repentance about. What is occluding the deep connection between you and your fellow human beings? What unfinished business, what unnecessary complexity is making us trif da'at, is tearing our focus away from the present tense reality of our experience and what shadow of fear or anger is keeping us from a deep emotional and spiritual connection to the people around us? Is the world really torn and dark? Or does it just appear that way to us because we are taking it through a torn mind and a hardened heart? Judges you shall put in all your gates. That is how Teshuvah begins. That's an interesting thought in our crazy world. Are we looking at it correctly? One reason that God brings trials into our lives is so that we can call upon him and then glorify him when he rescues us. In the midst of life-threatening situations, such as David was in here, we can still affirm like David in verse 5, quote, For you, my Lord, are tov, you are good, and you're ready to forgive, full of mercy to all who call upon you. And so as we wrap up this psalm this morning... I'm sure like most people here, I did not know that President Abraham Lincoln came to know the Messiah Yeshua personally through the burdens that he faced during the Civil War. 
He later said this, quote, I have been driven many times to my knees by the overwhelming conviction that I had absolutely no other place to go. Now, we might live in a time where our country and our state and our city desperately need God's salvation. There was an article Dr. Michael Brown put out yesterday said this. Three simple words are needed right now. We need God. We have sunk too deep into a moral morass, too deep into cultural confusion, too deep into a spiritual stupor. Only God can turn the tide. Only God can save us from implosion. We need God. Without a fresh wave of revival in the ecclesia that will lead us to a great awakening in our society, America is in a terminal condition. Let's be realistic for a moment. We need to understand just how far we have fallen. There was a time when truth was considered absolute. Today we have, quote, my truth and, quote, your truth. There was a time when moral standards were considered fixed. Today, morality is relative. Even reality has become relative. After all, you are whoever or whatever you perceive yourself to be, including males who are females and females who are males and others who are neither or both. A whole generation has been raised on this madness. Let us not fool ourselves. Consequently, while we're trying to restore respect for the scriptures, others are debating which preferred gender pronouns to use. We need to wake up. As for our reputation before the world, how many more scandals must we experience before we recognize that something is fundamentally wrong? We need God. Yet again and again, we think a new congregational strategy will transform us or we look to the latest political hero to deliver us, when will we learn? How much more shaking do we need in our nation from political upheaval to riots in our streets and from pandemics to financial crises before we fall to our knees by the millions and cry out for mercy? In the Tanakh, Israel consistently looked to the arm of flesh, hoping that other nations and leaders could bail them out of their trouble. But they were in trouble because they were not right in a right relationship with God. Instead, they continued in their sin and looked to man for help, but it never worked. What might God do, my friends, if we pray for his mercy to be poured out on this nation that so many of us, by polls, see is going in the wrong direction? Well, the next psalm attempts to answer that question. If revival in this nation depended on our tefillot, our prayers, our emunah, our trust, and our shema, our obedience, would we ever, if it was up to that and us, would we ever experience revival? If you and I fall short in these areas, then Psalm chapter 80 is a message for us. We should pray earnestly for revival among God's people. Now, nobody knows for sure when this particular psalm, Psalm 80, was written. But many scholars think it was written around 722 BCE when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. The nation had divided over 200 years before under Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Jeroboam, the, or Yerovam in Hebrew, the first king of the northern kingdom, had set up, you remember, idolatrous worship in Beit El and Dan in the north in a deliberate attempt to keep his people from going to Judah, to Jerusalem, to worship. 
Unfortunately, none of his successors had heeded the warnings as well of all the godly prophets going through the land to remove this idolatrous worship of golden calves. But finally, we see historically the northern kingdom did in fact fall to the Assyrians. They deported many of the survivors off, imported foreigners to mingle with those who were left in the land. And Psalm 80 was penned by the prophet, by the poet, by the Levite temple singer Asaph, who's living in the south. He witnesses destruction in the north. He's concerned, oh, that the same enemies don't come down and conquer us in the south. He sees, no doubt, the same unfaithfulness among his southerners that had led to the demise of the northerners. And so he earnestly entreats God to send revival. For the music director on Lilies, a testimony of Psalm of Asaph, Give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the Kerovim, shine forth. Before Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. O oh God, revive us, restore us, make your face shine, and we will be saved. Adonai Tzvaot, Lord of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? You have fed them the bread of tears. And made them drink a measure of tears. You made us a contention to our neighbors. And our enemies mock as they please. Elohet tzvaot. Restore us. Revive us. Make your face shine. And we will be saved. You pulled out a vine from Egypt. You drove out nations and planted it. You cleared a place for it. And it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered by its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea. And it shoots to the river. Why have you broken down its fences? So all who pass by the way pick its fruit. A boar from the forest ravages it. Whoever, whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Elohitz of Please return. Please revive. Look down from heaven and see. Now take care of this vine. The shoot your right hand planted. The sun you strengthen for yourself. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish from the rebuke of your face. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand. The son of man you have made strong for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Adonai Elohet Tzvaot. Restore us. Make your face shine and we will be saved. I want to look at the practical perspective of how we can develop greater faithfulness and fervency to pray for this, for revival. My friends, genuine revivals occur and begin when through the, preach, through the preaching and teaching of the word. Ruach HaKodesh convicts people of their spiritual apathy and their sin. And at the same time, the spirit, the Ruach, is opening eyes to get a new glimpse of of the holiness of God and of his wrath against sin. And then people begin to see their desperate condition. This is all what happens in revivals. They realize that they're helpless to do anything about it unless Adonai powerfully remedies that situation. In light of the past 50 plus years of increasing dependency or degeneracy rather in our nation, we desperately need genuine spirit sent revival. Psalm 80 reveals three items that will help us pray the more earnestly for it. Number one, we will do this. We will pray more earnestly for revival when we sense, again, like Psalm 86, when we sense our desperate need. 
Verse 6 says that God's people have been fed the bread of tears. Yeah, we have in America for sure. Their neighbors contend against them. Their neighbors laugh them to scorn. Russia's laughing at us. They're being plundered by all that pass by. Verse 13. They're like a vine burned with fire and cut down. Verse 17. So they desperately need Adonai to restore and save them. And I believe we can apply this by noting a couple of reasons that we desperately need revival. Very clearly, we need revival because of powerful enemies that are seeking to destroy us. Now, in terms of contextually, the physical enemies, the northern kingdom here represented by the tribes of Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh, who were encamped, you recall, under one banner in Torah, according to that list in Numbers chapter 2, they'd either just fallen or on the verge of falling to the brutal Assyrian army here at this time. They later then would surround Jerusalem. They were on the verge of conquering the southern kingdom, right, where Asaph was at, before God destroyed their enemy in response to what? To the prayer of King Hezekiah. God will respond to a nation and its leaders in prayer, dealing with their enemies. And in a similar way, the body of the Messiah has always been threatened by the powers of darkness that seek to annihilate her. You see, if you and I kept in mind our vulnerability, really, to this powerful enemy, we would more earnestly pray for God to stir our heart to revive us. And number two, we need revival because of the powerful sins that often entangle us too. The psalmist mentions in verse 5, Listen to this, that Adonai was even angry with the prayers of his people. Namely, that they were tolerating sin in their lives. At the same time, they're asking him to deliver them from their enemies. God promised them in scriptures that if they would humble themselves, turn from their wicked ways, and pray, he would what? Heal their land. They needed revival to bring them to genuine teshuvah, repentance, for their many sins. You see, one mark of genuine revival is that God's people awaken to a new and deeper sense of their sinfulness before a holy God. Through the word, Ruch HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, convicts us of sins that you and I had just been brushing off as no big deal. And maybe we've excused our sins by saying, out of context, we're under grace. Or we've minimized our sins by comparing ourselves with those who are worse off in sin. But in the past 50 years, or plus 50, 50, 60 years, the body of Yeshua's influence in America has been decimated. We need revival. Why? Because we get entangled in sin. We will pray more earnestly for revival, the psalmist writes, when we realize that only God can produce it. Genuine revival. You see, humanly orchestrated revivals are not really genuine or lasting in their effects. Yes, it's possible to get people to walk down the aisle and make decisions for Yeshua through various techniques. Emotional music, stories that touch people's feelings, powerful closing appeals, 
link with prayer leaders streaming toward the front. Good friend of mine in Israel, he was here about five years ago, Ron Cantor. How many of you know Ron Cantor of God TV and Tikkun Global? He just wrote a research paper a couple of weeks ago uh, in his master's program that I wanted to quote from here. And the title of the paper is The Brownsville Revival Up Close. It was the longest and largest running revival in U.S. history. Even the New York Times said this, quote, Revivals come and go, but what has been happening here night after night for almost two years is different. What started as a typical temporary revival on Father's Day, 1995, has snowballed into what is apparently the largest and longest running revival in America in almost a century. A member of Brownsville received a phone call sometime before the revival came. Bob, we just found out that Pastor John Kilpatrick has been praying in the Brownsville Church Sanctuary alone every Saturday night for revival. Entering the sanctuary, we immediately sensed in our spirits this was not going to be a normal time of prayer. There was a holy presence in that room, causing us to fall face down on the floor under the power of the Holy Spirit, a presence that held us there for almost two hours. The small prayer meeting on Saturday night continued for two years. They were getting hungrier. (laughs) Prayer for Israel and the Jewish people played a visible and powerful role before and during the revival. As people around the country and then the world heard about the revival, they streamed in to have their relationship with Yeshua revitalized by the Holy Spirit. Head usher Bill Bush of this congregation in Pensacola represents the hundreds of local Brownsville members that rose to the occasion to serve the masses with housing, ushering, food, and so much more. It was an Acts 2 moment where people dropped everything else to serve the move of the Lord. People would sometimes, listen to this. How many of you remember this back in the mid-90s? Yeah. People would sometimes arrive at 4.30 in the morning hoping to get a seat by 7 p.m. The presence of God was as strong in the line as it was in the meetings. People brought guitars and tambourines and worshipped all day. In those lines, racial and ethnic barriers came down. Social status did not matter. It was all about Yeshua. A staff member says he would drive in the morning and see a 1,000 people in line. When doors opened at 7 p.m., 2,500 people filled the church in only 58 seconds. The renewal anointing was transferred from place to place. Reports came in of people visiting Pensacola and then bringing the same revival power back to their local congregations. After I returned from Brownsville, I played a video at our Messianic Jewish Day School. I had no agenda other than to give God an opportunity to touch our kids. I asked if any of the students wanted prayer after the video. A few came, and I gently prayed. At first, nothing was happening, and I was ready to end it. Then one burst into tears, then another. It spread like wildfire until all over the room children were crying. Many claimed to have visions of heaven and some of hell. Vincent Sinon, a historian of Pentecostal and charismatic movements and dean at Regent University School of Divinity says characteristics of the Brownsville revival put it in the mainstream of American religious history. Quote, Brownsville, with its emphasis on conversion and people weeping over conviction of sin, 
seems to be a revival in the long tradition of American Native revivals dating back to the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. Eleven months into the revival, Dr. Michael Brown called me. He was investigating. Dr. Brown, the Messianic Jewish revivalist slash scholar, would lead the Brownsville Revival School of Ministry. Ward Simpson, the president of God TV and a member of the first graduating class, left the successful business, moved his family from beautiful Barbados to Pensacola just to be a part of the revival. We had uh, Ward Simpson at the Messiah Conference in July, and as he was sharing s- similar things like this, he just, I mean, talking 25 years later, he's still weeping as he shares about these things to us. The Brownsville Revival School of Ministry in its heyday had an enrollment of 1,200 students. Hundreds of former students are still in ministry. The students would be the legacy of the revival. The Brownsville Revival came to an end when there was a split between the leadership of the congregation and that of the school at the end of the year 2000. It should not be shocking that after five years, four million visitors, 300,000 altar responses, meeting five times a week, that some of the human relationships would begin to break down. Yeah, that's, that's, that's obvious. Real ministry, though, is not 24-7 revival. Real ministry is being there for a wife whose husband cheated on her. Real ministry is comforting children after the death of a parent. Real ministry is walking with couples through divorce. When Yeshua taught about leadership, he did emphasize revival power, but more often, servanthood. Lessons learned, and then we'll get back quickly. Number one, you can prepare for revival, but you cannot plan it. Many other leaders had a similar, have had a similar and maybe even more intense longing for revival. But God in his sovereignty chooses where and when he will pour out his spirit for his own purposes. Number two, don't estimate the cost of revival. In the early stages, there was mass volunteerism. The people understood that God had chosen them, and they paid the price to serve the visitors. But how long can one local congregation deal with three to four million visitors over five years? It took its toll. But with whatever mistakes were made, the numbers of lives changed at Brownville. Brownsville speaks for itself. Today, when God sends genuine revival... People who have attended for years in any congregation truly get born again of the Spirit. They had just never been born again. There are people that have sat in here for years. They were not saved until somebody with a lot of what we call holy chutzpah went directly to them and said, do you want to accept the Lord? And they did. They've been sitting here for years. God has never, he had never changed their hearts. But when the Spirit sends genuine revival, they see their need of the Messiah, they repent of their sins, and they genuinely get delivered and born again. It's not based on an emotional decision, but on a real change of heart. Finally, number three, we will pray more earnestly for revival when we desire for Adonai to be glorified. Because of the nation's sin... Adonai's glory had not been seen here. Instead, the pagan nations laugh Israel and Israel's God to scorn, verse 7. And so the psalmist is crying out to God to shine forth with his glory. How is God glorified? Several ways, my friends. He's glorified in revival when he shows his mighty power to do just that, to save us. Again, in verses 4 and 8 and verse 20, there is... 
this no doubt referred, again, physically to deliverance from their enemies. But it also has a spiritual dimension, doesn't it? Because sin and idolatry were at the root of Israel's problems. Sin and idolatry are the root of America's problems. And God gets glorified in revival when he shows his mighty act to save. Number two, is, uh, God is glorified in a revival, in revival when his people begin to obey him. God is calling the shepherd of Israel. April, if you'd come up. He's called in scriptures in verse 2 here, the shepherd of Israel. Shepherds lead their sheep, and the sheep follow, trusting the shepherd, right, to lead them into a place of abundance and safety. Stray sheep get eaten by predators. God is glorified when Yeshua sheep follow him. God is glorified in revival when his people are fruitful. The analogy here in the psalm of Adonai's people, uh, God's vine implies that they were to bear fruit for him. Yeshua used the vine analogy also saying that he is the true vine. We are the branches. We are to bear fruit for him. That's how God is glorified in revival. He's glorified in revival when there is genuine unity among his people. The psalm most likely represents, again, in pr the prayer of Asaph, he's in the southern kingdom. He's praying, listen, for his alienated brothers in the north. He, what's he doing? He's setting aside tribal rivalries, and he prays earnestly for God to take care of those who are perishing due to the enemy. My friends, when revival comes, Adonai's people are going to set aside their petty differences. They're going to love one another as brothers and sisters in Messiah. That's how God is glorified in revival. When you see division and dissension in a congregation, that's not God. That's a spirit of division. It's a dart from the adversary. It doesn't give God glory. And I'm sad to report that even in our small, little movement... Division does crop up in congregations. I was reading about one last night. It got me really upset last night. Darcy's like, what's wrong? You're usually pretty relaxed on Friday night. I said, look what just came through on a rabbi's form. Another leader caused another division in a congregation, split the thing in two again. Even in our small move. How many of you know the devil doesn't love messianic synagogues? He will bring every little dart he can if we allow that in. We need to be guarded. And I'm not talking about showroom guardians at the door with earpieces on. I'm not talking about that. Spiritually discerning of spirits that should not be welcomed into this place. Spirits of religiosity. Spirits of Jezebel. Spirits of division. Spirits of pride. Spirits of arrogance. We want nothing to do with that. And so that's why we pray. We've been praying for a, about a year and a half solid. Ladies and men, now we're doing it together. We're taking injections of faith to put this stuff out of here. God has glorified a revival when his people come to know him more deeply. Revival opens our eyes to see more deeply who he really is. So let's pray, my friends, for Ruach sent genuine revival. Now I point out here, it's interesting. In a sense, this prayer in Psalm 80 was not answered. At least not in the history of Israel. The northern kingdom never was restored. The southern kingdom saw periods of revival, right? Remember under Hezekiah and Josiah. But it finally went into captivity as well in Babylon. To Babylon. 
But like the psalmist, we may or we may not see revival in our day. But we should still pray for it earnestly to happen. The ultimate fulfillment of our prayer for revival is when Yeshua comes back to reign in glory and in power. And so I believe we ought to cry out like the psalmist does in verse 19, revive us and we will call on your name. Adonai Elohei Tzvaot, restore us, make your face shine, and we will be saved. I believe that God wants San Diego in revival. I don't believe it was just a one-off in the late 60s, early 70s in the Jesus movement here in Southern California. We are due again for revival, but we need to do some things to bring that about, to bring God's genuine revival. We need to humble our hearts. We need to preach the uncompromised word of the Lord. We need to walk in unity with our brothers and sisters, right? A lot of things that we can do to help foster. But God's still sovereign. But we're still going to pray for revival even if we don't see it. David prayed. Asaf prayed. Korah prayed. Even if they didn't see it, they still prayed earnestly for revival. And until I'm done and buried in, in the grave, my heart is set on revival. Why? Because there are Jewish people, 89,000 according to the latest survey in San Diego, that have to have an encounter with the living God of Israel. Not just in a, a prayer book, but a living God that have a relationship with the living God. Like Abraham did. Like Isaac did. Like Jacob did. Like Joseph did. Like Elijah did. Like Elisha did. Like Hosea did. It's prophesied over and over and over. They would seek the Lord their God and David their king. They would come to him and serve him in the end of days. That's prophetic, Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. There's hundreds of these prophecies. And whether we see it in our generation or not, we, we have to keep praying for revival. This was a small little church in the beautiful vacation resort of Brownsville, Pensacola, Florida. Come on, people. God just chose to pour out a spirit. Millions of people got touched by the Lord. Hundreds of thousands came to know the Lord. Small little backwater congregation. It can happen. But it takes a remnant of people that are serious about the things of God. I'm leading you and I'm serious about the things of God. Does that mean I'm sinless? Absolutely not. You'll probably find me at a movie tonight because it's three bucks. I'm a Jew. I look for good Jewish deals. I wasn't actually that excited about it until somebody said the refreshments are three bucks too. That got me really excited. That's where the money savings is at. We are serious about the things of the Lord. It doesn't mean we get off into excess or religiosity. No, we love the Lord, what he's doing. We love to see a life that was addicted to heroin or methamphetamine restored by the power of God. We love to see when someone's marriage comes back into realignment. Why? Because a humble hearts prevail and God's spirit could go into that marriage. We'd love to see that. That's where the power is. Many of you came to the Lord with that very testimony. You were strung out on drugs, you were drink, and God just, you know, free will versus his sovereignty, he just came into your life. Whether you believed in free will or not. Maybe some of you didn't even have a free will. God just zapped you and you got born again of his spirit. You got convicted of your sin. I love that. 
Maybe you've got a family member that's just in that situation. You've been praying for a decade. Don't stop praying for your family members. Don't stop. Family salvation is in the Word of God. They prayed in the book of Acts for family salvation. It's in the Word. But Rabbi, I've been praying for 40 years. We'll go on year 41. You keep going. Who knows what it's going to take? You know, a prophet's often without honor in his own country. Maybe God's going to bring about somebody that you didn't expect to come and share the Messiah from a different facet, a different point of view. You've been hammering them on Messianic prophecy, and you finally said, enough, Lord, I can't do it. And some guy just goes and tells your, your husband his testimony, and it breaks their heart, and they open themselves up to the Lord, and they, and they repent, and they come into the kingdom. We don't know how it's going to happen. doesn't mean we should stop praying. We need to pray for those God incidences, those God appointments. God's going to do a mighty work. Stand with me today. We are catching a messianic vision of revival in our hearts. We're here every week celebrating the resurrection power of Yeshua HaMashiach in our lives. And so as we take a little bit of time over this Labor Day weekend, get a little bit of rest, we've got an amazing fall coming on. We know things in the world are going to get a little hotter than it is even outside today. We see it. We sense it. We're to be prayed up. We're to be in season and out of season with the Word of God, with praise on our lips. We bind a spirit of disunity in Yeshua's name. We bind a spirit of pride in our midst in Yeshua's name. It is not about us. It is about giving you glory when you send revival. Lord, would you send revival into our hearts this day? We desire your revival in our lives as David did and Asaf did. Father, anoint the airwaves, anoint the interwebs, wherever the word of God is proclaimed in our city. We want our city saturated by the things of the kingdom of God. No longer would be known as a sanctuary of immorality, but again, a sanctuary for the Lord. Lord, even Time Magazine took note of it in 1970. The world will take notice of true, genuine revival when people's lives are transformed, when we begin to serve others in the love of the Lord. And so, Father, we're coming as one small little community saying on behalf of our city, send revival. Cause us to return in the season of return as we prepare for the day of the sounding of the shofar three weeks from now. Lord, send revival. Awaken us. Awaken San Diego and its suburbs. Awaken Southern California. We pray for our leaders right now. We pray that Governor Newsom would have a come to Yeshua moment in his life. Bring somebody, Lord, in his path to turn him away from these things, Lord. Do it across the nation, Lord. That you would get glory. We decrease that you would increase. We love you. We bless you. And as God told Moses to tell Aaron and his sons how to bless the children of Israel, we do this here as well. It's God's prayer. We love prayer. We love God praying over us in these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
May Adonai lift up his countenance over you and anoint you and equip you and heal you and prosper you and bless you in the name of the King of Kings, the King of Heaven. All hail Melech Yeshua in Yeshua's name. Amen. Via Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. We're not satisfied, Lord. Lord, I don't know if many of us would wait in a line at 4.30 a.m. for a 7 o'clock service, but you moved on hearts. Lord, do it again. Do it again, Lord, in our nation. Cause our nation to come back to you where prayer is honored in our schools, where the Ten Commandments are back in the schools, where biblical morality becomes back again the foundation of how we were founded. Lord, we don't, we don't want to set up a political idol or a man. We recognize that all men are flawed. Lord, but you can work through a political system. You can work through it, God. We ask you to work. We give you permission, Lord, to set up your reign in our state and in our country. We want to be the city shining on a hill that other nations would see that God, Adonai, is their God. Oh, God, bring us back to the days where... President Lincoln came to know the Messiah. Bring us back where presidents come to know you. We pray for our president right now. Lord, much has been made of his speech the other night. Lord, I ask that you would get to our president. Bring people in his cabinet, born again believers, to share the true Yeshua with President Biden and his cabinet. Do a shake-up if you need to shake it up, Lord. But Lord, bring revival. Send it from high. You've been waiting for nearly 2,000 years. A day is unto the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is unto a day. And after two days, He would revive us. And on the third day, He would raise us up. Lord, are we in that time where the Jubilee coincides with the Shemitah and Yom Teruah? Lord, we get a sense in our spirit the time is short. We thank you, God, that you've given us that privilege and opportunity to be a light in a candlestick in our city. And some will take it to the streets, and some will take it to the courtrooms, and some will take it to the county supervisor's building, and some will take it to their families. Some will be here serving as people come in. We all have a part to play in this. Do not think that God has thrust you aside because of sin in your past. Don't get caught up in shame. Get caught up in the Holy One of Israel. Turn back from sin. Turn back to Him. Let God use you mightily by His mighty power. Whew, we love you, Lord. We love you, Lord. Oh, God. Lord, I'm reminded we're so distracted. And I love competitive sports like the next guy. And I'm sad to see Serena Williams retire last night. But Lord, are we looking at the wrong stuff? How many hours can we save by focusing on the right stuff? The stuff that's going to matter in eternity. Lord, you've created us to have joy in our lives. And we love these things. But Lord, have we set it up as an idol in our hearts? Have we set technology up as an idol? Whatever it is, Lord, in our lives, we are to simplify it because you're going to do something amazing. And it's not because I try to manipulate and maneuver. They didn't do that down in Brownsville. They were not looking for that. 
The pastor was praying for a year and a half alone on Saturday nights, and God did that. Lord, what would you do if the swath of this country, at the body of the Messiah, united together, racial and ethnic lines just fell, and we began to pray for revival? Lord, we've seen it. We saw it after 9-11, but it faded after a couple of weeks. Lord, maybe we need another come to Yeshua moment. Maybe it's going to take another catastrophe, God forbid, to bring us to our knees, Lord. But if that's what it takes, we ask you, Lord, that we might have that opportunity to see the next great moving of your spirit upon this planet that the world's ever seen. We want to be in that, Lord. We want to be partakers of that. We want to serve in that. So, Lord, it's your time. But we ask that you would give us the strategies to help you smile on us and send true revival. We love you and we praise you. B'Shem Yeshua, Humeshichenu. Amen. Be amen. God bless you. We'll see you out for Kiddush. Have a wonderful time with your families this week. Stay cool, however you can do that. We'll see you back Tuesday night for some leadership training. Next Shabbat for some more psalms. Who knows what the Lord will do between now and then. I have an open heart to you. Amen. Shalom, everybody. Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through scripture.